From the New York Institute for the Humanities, I'm Eric Banks. In today's episode of The Vault, we recall a visit by a titan of postcolonial literature, B.S. Naipaul. In 1979, Naipaul delivered a talk and a set of readings at NYU as part of the Institute's James Lectures. In the second of two archival episodes, he reads excerpts from the novella One Out of Many, taken from his 1971 novel In a Free State, and from A Bend in the River, his then just-published novel that would soon become one of the most discussed titles, both celebrated and controversial, of his lengthy career. You may not like any of those characters. I know that been said, but, uh, you know, I'm not equipped that way. I don't think I myself read in order to feel sympathy for people, and my view of situations tends to be historical, and within that historical view, I feel sympathy for everybody. All of those people in that story I have the most enormous sympathy for. Now, for a change of pace and mood and much more what we expect, uh, something, (laughs) yes, something much more acceptable and easy. Let's have a change. This is a story about uh, an Indian servant in Washington. He really comes from Bombay, very happy with his employer. He sleeps happily on the pavement, has a little cubbyhole below the staircase where he keeps his things in the apartment in Bombay, which is very crowded, as you know. His employer is then posted to Washington, doesn't want to take the servant, whose name is Santosh, with him, but Santosh begs and pleads to be taken, not considering, of course, that uh, the salary of 100 rupees a month at this particular time is barely $10 a month and won't get him very far in in Washington. The story, it's an extract from the story. It's called One Out of Many. You might say it's a possible translation of E Pluribus Unum. (laughs) Santosh actually now is on the aeroplane. The plane started, rose up in the air, and Bombay and the ocean tilted this way and that. It was very nice. When we settled down, I looked around for people like myself, but I could see no one among the Indians or the foreigners who looked like a domestic. Worse, they were all dressed as though they were going to a wedding, and brother, I soon saw it wasn't they who were conspicuous. I was in my ordinary Bombay clothes, the loose long-tailed shirt, the wide-waisted pants held up with a piece of string, perfectly respectable domestics wear, neither dirty nor clean, and in Bombay, no one would have looked. But now in the plane, I felt heads turning whenever I stood up. I was anxious. I slipped off my shoes, tight even without the laces, and drew my feet up. That made me feel better. I made myself a little betel nut mixture, and that made me feel better still. Half the pleasure of betel, though, is the spitting. And it was only when I had worked up a good mouthful that I saw I had a problem. (laughs) The airline girl saw, too. (laughs) That girl didn't like me at all. She spoke roughly to me. My mouth was full, my cheeks were bursting, and I couldn't say anything. I could only look at her. She went and called a man in uniform, and he came and stood over me. I put my shoes back on and swallowed the Beetlejuice. It made me feel quite ill. (laughs) The girl and the man, the two of them, pushed a little trolley of drinks down the aisle. The girl didn't look at me, but the man said, You want a drink, chum? He wasn't a bad fellow. I pointed at random to a bottle. It was a kind of soda drink, nice and sharp at first, but then not so nice. I was worrying about it when the girl said, five shillings sterling or 60 cents US. That took me by surprise. I had no money, only a few rupees. The girl stamped, and I thought she was going to hit me with her pad when I stood up to show her who my employer was. Presently, my employer came down the aisle. He didn't look very well. He said without stopping, champagne, Santosh? Already we are overdoing? He went on to the lavatory. (laughs) 
when he passed back, he said foreign exchange, and to foreign exchange, that was all. Poor fellow, he was suffering too. The journey became miserable for me. Soon, with the wine I had drunk, the beetle juice, the movement and the noise of the aeroplane, I was vomiting all over my bundles, and I didn't care what the girls said or did. Later, there were more urgent and terrible needs. I felt I would choke in the tiny hissing room at the back. I had a shock when I saw my face in the mirror. In the fluorescent light, it was the color of a corpse. My eyes were strained, the sharp air hurt my nose and seemed to get into my brain. I climbed up on the lavatory seat and squatted. I lost control of myself. As quickly as I could, I ran back out into the comparative openness of the cabin and hoped no one had noticed. The lights were dim now. Some people had taken off their jackets and were sleeping. I hoped the plane would crash. The girl woke me up. She was almost screaming, it's you, isn't it, isn't it? I thought she was going to tear the shirt off me. I pulled back and leaned hard on the window. She burst into tears and nearly tripped on her sari as she ran up the aisle to get the man in uniform. Nightmare. They land in Washington. For the people of Washington, it was late afternoon or early evening. I couldn't say which. The time and the light didn't match as they did in Bombay. Of that drive, I remember green fields, wide roads, many motor cars traveling fast, making a steady hiss-hiss, which wasn't at all like our Bombay traffic noise. I remember big buildings and wide parks, many bizarre areas, then smaller houses without fences and with gardens like bush, with the hubshi standing about or sitting down, more usually sitting down, everywhere. Especially, I remember the hubshi. I'd heard about them in stories and had seen one or two in Bombay, but I had never dreamt that this wild race existed in such numbers in Washington and were permitted to roam the streets so freely. Oh, Father, what was this place I had come to? I wanted, I say, to be in the open, to breathe, to come to myself to reflect, but there was to be no openness for me that evening. From the aeroplane to the airport building, to the motor car, to the apartment block, to the elevator, to the corridor, to the apartment itself, I was forever enclosed, forever in the hissing, hissing sound of air conditioners. I was too dazed to take stock of the apartment. I saw it as only another halting place. My employer went to bed at once, completely exhausted, poor fellow. I looked around for my room. I couldn't find it and gave up. Aching for the Bombay ways, I spread my bedding in the carpet corridor just outside our apartment door. <laughs> the corridor was long, doors, doors. The illuminated ceiling was decorated with stars of different sizes. The colors were gray and blue and gold. Below that imitation sky, I felt like a prisoner. Waking, looking up at the ceiling, I thought just for a second that I had fallen asleep on the pavement below the gallery of our Bombay chambers. Then I realized my loss. I couldn't tell how much time had passed or whether it was night or day. The only clue was that newspapers now lay outside some doors. It disturbed me to think that while I had been sleeping alone and defenseless, I had been observed by a stranger and perhaps by more than one stranger. I tried the apartment door and found I had locked myself out. I didn't want to disturb my employer. I thought I would get out into the open, go for a walk. I remembered where the elevator was. I got in and pressed the button. The elevator dropped fast and silently, and it was like being in the aeroplane again. When the elevator stopped and the blue metal door slid open, I saw plain concrete corridors and blank walls. The noise of machinery was very loud. I knew I was in the basement, and the main floor was not far above me, but I no longer wanted to try. I gave up ideas of the open air, 
I thought I would just go back up to the apartment, but I hadn't noted the number and didn't even know what floor we were on. My courage flowed out of me. I sat on the floor of the elevator and felt tears come to my eyes. Almost without noise, the elevator door closed, and I found I was being taken up silently at great speed. The elevator stopped and the door opened. It was my employer, his hair uncombed, yesterday's dirty shirt partly unbuttoned. He looked frightened. Santosh, where have you been at this hour of the morning without your shoes? I could have embraced him. He hurried me back past the newspapers to our apartment, and I took the bedding inside. The wide window shared the early morning sky, the big city. We were high up, way above the trees. I said, I couldn't find my room. My employer said, but government sanctioned. Are you sure you've looked? We looked in the flat together for my room. One little corridor led past the bathroom to his bedroom. Another shorter corridor led to the big room and the kitchen. There was nothing else. Government sanctioned, my employer said, moving about the kitchen and opening cupboard doors. Separate entrance shelving, I have the correspondence. He opened another door and looked inside. He said, Santosh, do you think it is possible that this is what government meant? The cupboard he had opened was as high as the rest of the apartment and as wide as the kitchen, about six feet. It was about three feet deep. It had two doors. One door opened into the kitchen. Another door directly opposite opened into the corridor. My employer said, separate entrance, shelving, electric light, power point, <laughs> fitted carpet. I said, this must be my room, sir. <laughs> he, he said, Santosh, some enemy in government has done this to me. <laughs> I said... <laughs> Oh, no, Saab, you mustn't say that. Besides, I said, it is very big. I will be able to make myself very comfortable. It is much bigger than my little cubbyhole in the chambers in Bombay. It has a nice flat ceiling. I wouldn't hit my head. You don't understand, Santosh, he said. Bombay is Bombay, but here, if we start living in cupboards, we give the wrong impression. <laughs> they will think we all live in cupboards in Bombay. I said, oh, sir, but they can just look at me and see I am dirt. He said, you are very good, Santosh, but these people are malicious. Still, if you are happy, then I am happy. I said, I am very happy, Saab. And after all the upset, I was. It was nice to crawl in that evening, spread my bedding and feel protected and hidden. I slept very well. In the morning, my employer said, we must talk about money, Santosh. Your salary is 100 rupees a month, but Washington isn't Bombay. Everything is a little bit more expensive here. And I'm going to give you a dearness allowance. As from today, you are getting 150 rupees. I said, Saab. He said, and I'm giving you a fortnight's pay in advance in foreign exchange. 75 rupees, 10 cents of the rupee, 750 cents, 750 US. Here, Santosh. This afternoon, you go out and have a little walk and enjoy. But be careful. We are not among friends, remember. So at last, rested, with money in my pocket, I went out in the open. And of course, the city wasn't a quarter as frightening as I had thought. The buildings weren't particularly big. Not all the streets were busy, and there were many lovely trees. A lot of the hubshi were about, very wild-looking, some of them, with dark glasses and their hair standing out. But to see that if you didn't trouble them, they didn't attack you. 
I was looking for a cafe or a tea stall where perhaps domestics congregated, but I saw no domestics. And I was chased away from the place I did eventually go into. The girl said, after I had been waiting some time, can't you read? We don't serve hippies or bare feet here. <laughs> oh, father, I had come out without my shoes. But what a country, I thought, walking briskly away, where people are never allowed to dress normally, but must forever wear their very best. Why must they wear out shoes and fine clothes for no purpose? What occasion are they honoring? What waste, what presumption? Who do they think is noticing them all the time? <laughs> and even while these thoughts were in my head, I found I had come to a roundabout with trees and a fountain, where, and it was like a fulfillment in a dream, not easy to believe, there were many people who looked like my own people. I tightened the string around my loose pants, held down my flapping shirt, and ran through the traffic to the green circle. Some of the Habshi were there, playing musical instruments and looking quite happy in their way. There were some Americans sitting about on the grass and the fountain and the curb. Many of them were in rough, friendly-looking clothes, some were without shoes. And I felt I had been over-hasty in condemning the entire race. But it wasn't these people who had attracted me to the circle. It was the dancers. The men were bearded, barefooted, and in saffron robes. And the girls were in saris and canvas shoes that looked like our own bata shoes. <laughs> they were shaking little cymbals and chanting and lifting their heads up and down and going round in a circle, making a lot of dust. It was a little bit like a Red Indian dance in a cowboy movie, but they were chanting Sanskrit words in praise of Lord Krishna. I was very pleased. But then a disturbing thought came to me. It might have been because of the half-caste appearance of the dancers. It might have been their bad Sanskrit pronunciation and their accent. I thought that these people were now strangers, but that perhaps once upon a time they had been like me. Perhaps, as in some story, they had been brought here among the Habshi as captives a long time ago <laughs> and had become a lost people, like our own wandering gypsy folk, and had forgotten who they were. When I thought that, I lost my pleasure in the dancing. And I felt for the dancers the sort of distaste we feel when we are faced with something that should be kin, but turns out not to be, turns out to be degraded, like a deformed man or a leper who from a distance looks whole. I didn't stay. Not far from the circle, I saw a cafe which appeared to be serving bare feet. I went in, <laughs> had a coffee and a nice piece of cake and bought a pack of cigarettes. Matches they gave me free with the cigarettes. <laughs> it was all right. But then the bare feet began looking at me, and one bearded fellow came and sniffed loudly at me and smiled and spoke some sort of gibberish. And then some others of the bare feet came and sniffed at me. They weren't unfriendly, but I didn't appreciate the behavior. And it was a little frightening to find when I left the place, two or three of them appeared to be following me. They weren't unfriendly, but I didn't want to take any chances. I passed the cinema. I went in. It was something I wanted to do anyway. In Bombay, I used to go once a week, and that was all right. The movie had already started. It was in English, not too easy for me to follow, and it gave me time to think. It was only there, in the darkness, that I thought about the money I had been spending. The prices had seemed to me very reasonable, like Bombay prices. Three for the movie ticket, one fifty in the cafe with a tip, but I had been thinking in rupees and paying in dollars. 
In less than an hour, I had spent nine days' pay. I couldn't watch the movie after that. I went out and began to make my way back to the apartment block. Many more of the Habshi were about now, and I saw that where they congregated, the pavement was wet and dangerous with broken glass and bottles. I couldn't think of cooking when I got back to the apartment. I couldn't bear to look at the view. I spread my bedding in the cupboard, lay down in the darkness, and waited for my employer to return. When he did, I said, Saab, I want to go home. He said, Santosh, I've paid 5,000 rupees to bring you here. If I send you back now, you will have to work for six or seven years without salary to pay me back. I burst into tears. He said, my poor Santosh, something has happened. Tell me what has happened. I said, Saab, I've spent more than half the advance you gave me this morning. I went out and had a coffee and cake, and then I went to a movie. His eyes went small and twinkly behind his glasses. He bit the inside of his top lip, scraped at his moustache with his lower teeth, and he said, You see, you see, I told you it was expensive. This is the, the last piece. It's the piece from um, The Bend in the River. After that earlier piece in Africa about a man resisting the end of one phase of history, here is a, a piece about a man trying to attach himself to, to uh, a new phase. He is a Ray Moore, but I'll call him Raymond in this reading. Raymond is a middle-aged man, a schoolteacher in colonial days. By an extraordinary set of circumstances, he's become close to the president of a new French-speaking country in Central Africa. Raymond, in fact, is known in the country as the big man's white man. He's a historian. He's writing a, a history of the country for the government and doing other academic presidential jobs. But Raymond is no longer in favor. He's been sent to be head of a presidential showplace in a provincial town, and the showplace is called the State Domain. Yvette is Raymond's young Belgian wife. The narrator, a trader in the town, a young man desperate for knowledge of the world is Yvette's lover. He tells the story. Through Yvette, I was bound to Raymond. And through Raymond, I was bound more closely than ever to the fact or the knowledge of the president's power. Seeing the president's photograph everywhere had already made me feel that whether African or not, we had all become his people. To that was now added, because of Raymond, the feeling that we were all dependent on the president and that whatever job we did and however much we thought we were working for ourselves, we all were serving him. For that brief moment, when I had believed Raymond to be as he had been described, the big man's white man, I had been thrilled to feel so close to the highest power in the land. I felt I had been taken far above the country I knew and its everyday worries, the mountainous rubbish dumps, bad roads, tricky officials, shanty towns, the people coming in every day from the bush and finding nothing to do and little to eat, the drunkenness, the quick murders, my own shop. Power and the life around the president and the capital had seemed to be what was real and essential about the country. When I understood what Raymond's position was, the president had once again appeared to zoom away and to be high above us. But now there remained a link with him, the sense of his power as a personal thing to which we were all attached as with strings, which he might pull or let dangle. That was something I had never felt before. Like other expatriates in the town, I had done what was expected of me, 
We hung up the official photographs in our shops and offices. We subscribed to the various presidential funds, but we tried to keep all that as background, separate from our private lives. At the Hellenic Club, for instance, though there was no rule about it, we never talked about local politics. But now, taken deep into the politics through Raymond and Yvette, and understanding the intent behind each new official photograph, each new statue of the African Madonna with child, I could no longer consider statues and photographs as background. I might be told that thousands were owed in Europe to the printers of those photographs, but to understand the president's purpose was to be affected by it. The visitor might snigger about the African Madonna. I couldn't. The news about Raymond's book, the history, was bad. There was no news. Raymond, in the meantime, had finished his work on the president's speeches. That had been his own idea. He was good at hiding his disappointments and strains, but they were reflected in Yvette. Sometimes when she came to the flat, she looked years older than she was, with her young skin looking bleached, the flesh below her chin sagging into the beginning of a double chin, the little wrinkles about her eyes more noticeable. Poor girl, it wasn't at all what she'd expected from a life with Raymond. She was a student in Europe when they'd met. He'd gone there with an official delegation, his role as the advisor of the man who had recently made himself president was supposed to be secret, but his eminence was generally known, and he'd been invited to lecture the university where Yvette was. She'd asked a question afterwards. She was writing a thesis about the theme of slavery in French-African writing. They had met. She'd been overwhelmed by his attentions. Raymond had been married before, but there had been a divorce some years before independence, while he was still a teacher, and his wife and daughter had gone back to Europe. Yvette said... They say that men should look at the mother of the girl they intend to marry. Girls who do what I did should consider the wife a man has discarded or worn out. And no, they aren't going to do much better. But can you imagine this handsome and distinguished man? When Raymond took me out to dinner for the first time, he took me to one of the most expensive places. He did it all in a very absent-minded way. But he knew the kind of family I came from. He knew exactly what he was doing. He spent more on that dinner than my father earned in a week. I knew it was delegation money, but it didn't matter. Women are stupid, but if women weren't stupid, the world wouldn't go round. It was wonderful when we came out, she said, continuing. I'm, I must say that. The president invited us to dinner regularly, and for the first two or three times, I sat on his right. He said he could do no less for the wife of his old professor, but that wasn't true. Raymond never taught him. That was just for the European press. He was extraordinarily charming, the president, and there was never any hint of nonsense, I should add. The first time we talked about the table, literally. It was made of local wood and carved with African motifs at the edge, rather horribly, if you want to know. He said the Africans had prodigious skills as wood carvers and that the country could supply the whole world with high-quality furniture. It was like the recent talk about an industrial park along the river. It was just an idea to talk about. But I was new then, and I wanted to believe everything I was told. Always there were the cameras, always the cameras, even in those early days. He was always posing for them. You knew that, and it made conversation difficult. He never relaxed. He always led the conversation. He never let you start a new topic. He simply turned away. The etiquette of royalty. He'd learned it from somebody, and I learned it from him the hard way. He had this very abrupt way of turning away from you. It was like a piece of personal style and he seemed to enjoy the stylishness of turning and walking straight out of a room at the appointed time. 
We used to go out on tours with him. We appeared in the background in a few of the old official pictures, white people in the background. I noticed that his clothes were changing, but I thought it was only his way of wearing more comfortable clothes, African-style country clothes. Everywhere we went, there used to be these welcoming séances d'animation, tribal dancing. He was very keen on that. He said he wanted to give dignity to those dances that Hollywood and the West had maligned. He intended to build modern theatres for them. And it was during one of those animations that I got into trouble. He'd put his stick on the ground. I didn't know that had a meaning. I didn't know I had to shut up. That in the old days of the chiefs, to talk when that stick was down was something you could be beaten to death for. I was close to him, and I said something perfectly banal about the skill of the dancers. He just curled his lips in anger and looked away, lifting up his head. There wasn't any stylishness in that. All the Africans were horrified at what I had done, and I felt that the make-believe had turned horrible, that I'd come to a horrible place. After that, I couldn't appear with him in public. But, of course, that wasn't why he broke with Raymond. In fact, he was friendlier than ever with Raymond afterwards. He broke with Raymond when he decided that he didn't need him, that in the new direction he was taking, the white man was an embarrassment to him in the capital. As for me, he never spoke to me, but he always made a point of sending me his regards, of having some official come to ask how I was getting on. He needs a model in everything, and I believe he heard that de Gaulle used to send personal regards to the wives of his political enemies. <laughs> that was why I thought that if Inder made some inquiries about Raymond's book in the capital, it would get back to him. Everything gets back to the president here. The place is a one-man show, as you know and I was expecting to get some indirect word. But in all these months, he hasn't even sent me his regards. That was Yvette. She suffered more than Raymond appeared to. She was in a country that was still strange to her, and she was dangling, doubly dependent. Raymond was in a place that had become his home. He was in a situation that he had perhaps lived through before, when he was a neglected teacher in the colonial capital. Perhaps he'd returned to his older personality, the self-containedness he'd arrived at as a teacher, the man with a quiet but defiant knowledge of his own worth. But I felt there was something else. I felt that Raymond was consciously following a code he had prescribed for himself, and the fact that he was following this code gave him his serenity. This code forbade him expressing disappointment or envy. In this... He was different from the young men who continued to come to the domain and called on him and listened to him. Raymond still had his big job. He still had those boxes of papers that many people wanted to look through. And after all his years as the big man's white man, all those years as the man who knew more about the country than any man living, Raymond still had a reputation. When one of these visitors spoke critically about somebody's book or a conference that somebody had organized somewhere, Raymond wasn't invited to conferences these days. Raymond would say nothing unless he had something good to say about the book or the conference. He would look steadily at the eyes of the visitor as though only waiting for him to finish. I saw him do this many times. He gave the impression then of hearing out an interruption. Yvette's face would register the surprise or the hurt as it did on the evening when I understood from something one of our visitors said that Raymond had applied for a job in the United States and had been rejected. The visitor, a bearded man with mean and unreliable eyes, was speaking like a man on Raymond's side. He was even trying to be a little bitter on Raymond's behalf. And this made me feel that he might be one of those visiting scholars Yvette told me about, 
who, while they were going through Raymond's papers, also took the opportunity of making a pass at her. Times had changed since the early 60s, the bearded man said. Africanists were not so rare now, and people who had given their life to the continent were being passed over. The great powers had agreed for the time being not to wrangle over Africa. And as a result, attitudes to Africa had changed. The very people who had said that the decade was the decade of Africa and had scrambled after its great men were now giving up on Africa. Yvette lifted her wrist and looked carefully at her watch. It was like a deliberate interruption. She said, the decade of Africa finished 10 seconds ago. She had done that once before, when someone had spoken of the decade of Africa, and the trick worked again. She smiled. Raymond and I laughed. The bearded man took the hint, and the subject of Raymond's rejected application was left alone. The closeness of the president that had given Raymond his reputation and had made people call him out to conferences in different parts of the world now disqualified him from serious consideration abroad. Unless something extraordinary happened, he would have to stay where he was, dependent on the power of the president. His position in the domain required him to display authority. But at any moment, he might be stripped of this authority, reduced to nothing, with nothing to fall back on. In his place, I don't think I would have been able to pretend to have any authority. That would have been the hardest thing for me. I would have just given up, understanding the truth of what my friend Mahesha told me years before. Remember, Salim, the people here are malin. But Raymond showed no uncertainty, and he was loyal to the president, to himself, to his ideas and his work, his own past. My admiration for him grew. I studied the president's speeches, the daily newspapers of Flona from the capital, for signs that Raymond might be called back to favor. And if I became Raymond's encourager after Yvette, if I became his champion and promoted him, even with the Hellenic Club, as the man who hadn't published much but really knew, the man every intelligent visitor ought to see, it wasn't only because I didn't want to see him go away and Yvette with him, I didn't want to see him humiliated. I admired his code and wished that when my own time came, I might be able to stick to something like it. Life in our town was arbitrary enough. Yvette, seeing my life as settled, with everything waiting for me somewhere, had seen her own life as fluid. She felt she wasn't as prepared as the rest of us. She had to look out for herself. That was how we all felt, though. We saw our own lives as fluid. We saw the other man or person as solider. But in the town, where all was arbitrary and the law was what it was, all our lives were fluid. We none of us had certainties of any kind. Without always knowing what we were doing, we were constantly adjusting to the arbitrariness by which we were surrounded. In the end, we couldn't say where we stood. We stood for ourselves. We all had to survive. But because we felt our lives to be fluid, we all felt isolated, and we no longer felt accountable to anyone or anything. That was what had happened to my friend Mahesh. He had said, it isn't that there's no right and wrong here. There's no right. And that was what had happened to me. Raymond's routine didn't change. He tended to be working in his study when I and visitors, if there were visitors, arrived. He took his time to appear, and in spite of his absent-minded air, his hair was always freshly damped, nicely combed backwards, and he was neatly dressed. His exits, 
when they were preceded by a little speech, could be dramatic, but his entrances were usually modest. He liked, especially at after-dinner gatherings, to begin by pretending to be a shy guest in his own house, but it didn't take much to draw him out. Many people wanted to hear about his position in the country and his relations with the president, but Raymond no longer talked about that. He talked instead about his work, and from that he moved on to general intellectual topics. The genius of Theodore Mommsen, the man Raymond said had rewritten the history of Rome, was a favorite theme. He never avoided making a political comment, but he never raised the subject of politics himself and never became involved in political argument. However critical our guests were of the country, Raymond allowed them to have their say in that way he had of hearing out an interruption. Our visitors were becoming increasingly critical. They had a lot to say about the cult of the African Madonna. Shrines had been set up and were being set up in various places connected with the president's mother, and pilgrimages to these places had been decreed for certain days. We knew about the cult, but in our region we hadn't seen too much of it. The president's mother came from one of the small downriver tribes far away, and in our town we had only had a few statues in semi-African style and photographs of shrines and processions. But visitors who'd been to the capital had a lot to report and it was easy enough for them as outsiders to be satirical. More and more, they included us, Raymond and Yvette, and people like myself, in their satire. And still, no word came from the capital, and Raymond and Yvette continued to dangle. But then, for a month or so, their spirits appeared to lift. Yvette told me that Raymond had reason to believe that his selections from the president's speeches had found favor. I was delighted. It was quite ridiculous. I found myself looking in a different way at the president's photographs. And though no direct word came, Raymond, after being on the defensive for so long, and after all the talking he'd had to do about the Madonna cult, began to be more argumentative with visitors and to hint with something of his old verve that the president had something up his sleeve that would give a new direction to the country. Once or twice, he even spoke about the possible publication of a book of the president's speeches and its effect on the people. The book was published, but it wasn't the book Raymond had worked on, not the book of longish extracts with a linking commentary. It was a very small, thin book of thoughts. Maxime, two or three thoughts to a page, each thought about four or five lines long. Stacks of the book came to our town. They appeared in every bar and shop and office. My shop got 100, Mahesh got 150 at Big Burger. The Tivoli got 150. Every pavement huckster got a little stock, five or 10. It depended on the commissioner. The books weren't free. We had to buy them at 20 francs a copy in multiples of five. The commissioner had to send the money for his entire consignment back to the capital. And for a fortnight or so, big man as he was, he ran around everywhere with his Land Rover full of Maxime trying to place them. The youth guard used up a lot of its stock on one of its Saturday afternoon children's marches. These marches were hurried, ragged affairs, blue shirts, hundreds of busy little legs, white canvas shoes, some of the smaller children frantic, close to tears, regularly breaking into a run to keep up with their district group, everybody anxious to get to the end and then to get back home, which could be many miles away. 
The march with the President's booklet was raggeder than usual. The afternoon was overcast and heavy after early morning rain, and the mud in the streets drying out had reached the nasty stage where bicycles and even footsteps caused it to fly about in sticky lumps and pellets. Mud stained the children's canvas shoes red and looked like wounds on their black legs. The children were meant to hold up the president's book as they marched and to shout the long African name the president had given himself. But the children hadn't been properly drilled. The shouts were irregular. And since the clouds had rolled over black and it looked as though it was going to rain again soon, the marchers were in a greater hurry than usual. They just held the little book and scampered in the gloom, spattering one another with mud, shouting only when the youth guard shouted at them. The marches were already something of a joke to our people, and this didn't help. Most people, even people from the deep bush, understood what the Madonna cult was about. But I don't think anyone in the squares or the market had any idea what the Maxime march was about, that even Mahesh at Big Burger knew what the march referred to or was modelled on until he was told. So Maxime failed with us, and it must have been so in other parts of the country as well, because shortly after reporting the great demand for the book, the newspapers dropped the subject. Raymond, speaking of the president, said, he knows when to pull back. That has always been one of his great virtues. No one understands better than he the cruel humor of his people, and he may finally decide that he's being badly advised. Raymond was still waiting then. In what I had seen as his code, I began to recognize a stubbornness and something like vanity. But Yvette now didn't even bother to conceal her impatience. Raymond might have nowhere else to go, but Yvette was restless. This podcast has been brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities at NYU in conjunction with the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. Our producers are Annika Kaundinya and Ben Branstein. Our thanks to Uli Baer and for their technical and design acumen, Aaron Dowdy and Selena Lacazzi. For more information, or if you'd like to subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at, and this is one word, nyihumanities.org. Again, that's nyihumanities.org. 